I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson. And together we are the Two Enthusiasts Podcast. The Two Enthusiasts Podcast. One part Diet Pepsi, one part milk. <laughs> that's good. Uh, yeah. You got to explain that to our yeah, listeners because that's, that's kind of an inside thing. I was in a, uh, a diner uh, with my partner Jet hanging out, eating breakfast, and we this this rotund family from Central Central Western Oregon plops down, and I hear Grandma order a Pepsi diet, very specifically Diet Pepsi half diet pepsi half milk and and i uh, i kind of uh, i didn't uh, really i'm register. still gr- i'm still grossed out by that i was like i was in my i was all up in my corned beef hash and eggs right that's i was like stoked to be at a diner that had corned beef hash and eggs even if it was out of a can i'd been camping for two days or three days i was like you know moto journey it's the first like sit down food you had and while you're you get into it so i wasn't really i was like nosh 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 then Jet looks up at me with that look like, did I just, he, did, did really, did they just say that? And I'm like, oh my God. Ugh. Then he kind of gives you the shivers. But then somebody brought up to me, you know, well, you eat, you'd probably like a, uh, a, a root beer float. I'm like, oh yeah, how that's weird. And I started thinking of Italian sodas because they, they, I've, I've had a couple of those, you know, a raspberry soda with cream. And it's like, well, that doesn't seem like that would be good, but it is. So, why is it that much different? Well, it's because it's diet Pepsi and milk. It just sounds gross. I almost went to the store and got some milk just so we could have little diet cokes and milk just to see just to see what all the fuss is about. Get a, like a shot of each and see what it, it does. Just, it just kind of doesn't sound right. It just for me. But like when you say it, like yeah, an orange creamsicle, okay, root beer float, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. I kind of especially get it. the root beer float because you're not, like, you're like, wow, that actually that's really good. Of yeah. course it is. It's still, I don't know. Yeah, that's just that's another level of like existence. I'm just not at uh, where I am at though is the fact that this podcast is brought to you by the good folks at <laughs> AGV and Dainese with their factory D stores in San Francisco, Orange County, Orlando, Chicago, New York, and LA soon to come. Dainese and AGV go together but way, way better than Pepsi and milk. I think I think that's actually like some some ad copy they sent <laughs> right? us was how like the two brands go together <laughs> and like they should change it. Goes together better than Pepsi and milk. Yeah, you just say it goes together like root beer and ice cream. Mmm, yeah. mm, mm. tasty. Yeah, we get a finder's fee if they use that. Okay, right on. Quinn, it's been a long time since we talked about some newsy stuff. So I got a bunch of news headliney things that I wanted to discuss with Let's you today. Let's dig in and plow through them. What I want to do first, though, is break some news. This is the only motorcycle podcast that breaks <laughs> some mother effing news. So let's do it. Because right. you got a tip, and then I got a tip, and then our tips came together. Oh, dude. Too soon? Mm-hmm. Too soon in the podcast? Do we need to let people get a little bit more drunky drunk before we do that? Yeah, we can't. We can't. Don't be so suburban. <laughs> okay. So your tip and my tip. <laughs> He's going to cut this out. It's going to make me so angry. <laughs> Because it's good. It's so good. It is. <laughs> like he's actually laughing at the my point mom, where he can't this talk. This might be the one episode my mom actually listens to. And then she's like, Johnson, we need to talk. <laughs> are you and that long haired fellow a thing? <laughs> it's cool if you are. I just want to know. <laughs> no, mom, we're just friends. Um, where do I, how do you recover from the such tips, a thing? The tips. Speaking of tips. Speaking of tips. What looks like a big phallus 
uh, Suzuki Hayabusa. Yeah. yeah, so it's been interesting. So we saw we saw carb filings for a 2018 Suzuki Hayabusa. The emission standards match exactly the previous models. So we can say with a lot of certainty that there won't be a new Suzuki Hayabusa in the 2018 model year. That does not mean there won't be a Suzuki Hayabusa in 2018, as some people seem to think that news suggested, but there will be a, a model for the 2018 model year. And yeah, it'll, who it'll knows? Be, they might even come out like, all right, final edition or something like that. Final countdown. Yeah, right. Because it's now almost 20 years old. It's really old. That's and, so weird. And this is the funny thing, because I was, I was telling someone, you know, like the Suzuki Hayabusa is one of those bikes that got me into motorcycling. Uh, just because it's it was back in those speed wars. I was like, I don't know. It's like 15. I might have been a little, I might have been 15, 16. I was getting into like vehicles and I was driving a car and getting into that. And it was on my radar. Like that's the fastest bike on the market and it's really sleek and aerodynamic. And like, you know, you can kind of be like, look down your nose on a Hayabusa. But like back in the day, that was pretty, that was pretty sick. I still think they're, they're, they're awesome bikes. I think they look good, especially for how old they are. I think that's a design that's aged well. But the news that (laughs) the tip to get back to our tips, you got a tip. That we would be seeing a turbocharged yeah. uh, Suzuki Smaller Hayabusa. displacement, but I don't think that much smaller than turbo. The more than when I heard this, I was like, hmm, yeah, that makes sense, especially relative to what we saw a few years ago with the 588 concept, which yeah. was a turbo, and what we saw with uh, Kawasaki come out with, uh, with the H2, which is a supercharged. So, forced induction makes sense, and... You know, with the with the advent of of computer control that is super good now, uh, make per, turbos do make sense. You can control them; it can be done, and and it, it's an efficient way to make power. Yeah, and then uh, I got a little tippy tip that while the 2018 bike will be the same old Suzuki that we've seen, expect to see an early release 2019 model mid 2018, which would make sense because I think 99 is the 20 year anniversary, right? 90, it was 99 that, that they sounds, came out. That sounds right. Yeah, so it would, it would be close to the 20-year, you know, maybe that's the thing. Suzuki seems to have some sentimental bends, and that might be one of the things. They're like, all right, we'll wait until this. And Well, when you've waited this long, you might as well do it on an anniversary, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, if you've waited 19 years, you yeah. might as well wait another another year yeah. and make it a big thing. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, that's that'll be some breaking news. You, you heard it here first. Uh, this time next year, hopefully, uh, thereabouts, we'll see a turbocharged Suzuki Hayabusa coming onto the market. And hopefully it won't look like a horse suppository. <laughs> I still think it looks good. <laughs> I still think it looks good. Don't be a hater. <laughs> uh, have you spent much time on one? No. I've heard they're very comfortable. They're actually yeah, they're decent, decent for touring. I've ridden a couple of them and they're, they're fine. I don't. It's not like something that I lust after or want, but between that and the Cowie ZX14R thing... I actually enjoy them in a strange way. I like I'd be mainly in a oh, I could go long distance. This would be fun to go long distance. I think it's one of those bikes that like with a little bit of tweaking can be a really good true sport tour. Like yeah. capital S sport tour. You could go do a track day at Sears Point and do, go just fine and embarrass some guys on smaller bikes if you know what you're doing and be just as comfortable on the freeway plucking down 500, 600 miles in a day. Kind of do it all. Not going to do everything great, but you can do it all pretty well. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting. 
Sure. So I'll be very curious to see what that final package looks like. If it's a smaller displacement, what displacement are we talking? Because the 588, that feels kind of tiny for a Suzuki. Yeah, just, that, just from like that wouldn't roll. Yeah, but if it was like a leader bike it with has a turbo. To be a thousand. I'm sure it, it's going to have to be. Just, just from a marketing standpoint, you have to make it big enough. I've thought for a long time that recursion concept would make a really good Katana, if you want to bring the Katana name back. Have that be your kind of your middleweight, yeah. sport, touring, naked whatever yeah. you want to call that standard, basically. I could see. And then have a, a larger component that could be the high boost. So that could be very interesting. So we'll see if that speculation comes true. I'm very curious to see. Uh, we got some good sources on that, so I'm pretty confident that we'll, we'll, that'll be the case. So if you see something in the news that says that we're not going to have a new, that we're not having any high boosts for 2018, that's wrong. And um, yeah, there's been some interesting internet speculation out there. Uh, moving along, Quentin... Um, did you, did you happen to hear about a recall for, for BMW or, or two or three? <laughs> a few. <laughs> There's been a few. Uh, it's been a bad, a bad couple months or so for, for BMW in terms of recalls. The big one obviously has been the, uh, the front end of the R1200 GS, their flagship bike. Uh, which recalling. initially wasn't going to be a recall. They were figuring out a way to kind of skirt around that one a little bit. Yeah. I think that I think that's what got them in a, into a bit of trouble because the the initial reaction was they're just going to do a worldwide service bulletin, which is just kind of like it's. Hey y'all, we have this thing that might happen. You should no you biggie. Should, if you got time, come on down to the dealership. They're, it's probably fine. Don't worry about <laughs> it. But yeah, there's some interesting legal and and definitional. Well, definitional is probably not definitional. a word. Definitional. I like that. Is that. Is that's, the definition of that? And uh, see, you probably and, haven't heard that word. I'm a words guy. That's <laughs> you that's like words. You're good words. at the words. You, I got you all have the all words. the biggest words. I have the best words. Yeah. And this one's definitional of just <laughs> being who I am. <laughs> uh, drink. But uh, I totally lost my train of thought. Now that we did that little that little schmeal. Sh- um, definitional about the. Uh, Oh yeah, the so there, there's there's some there's some important distinctions between a service bulletin and a recall, and the biggest one is recalls are mandated, and it's pushed down by it's the government. Safety. It, it's safety related. Mm-hmm. It's government mandated. It's it creates certain liabilities to the manufacturer. Whereas a service bulletin, it's more like uh, a suggestion, like hey, the next time your bike is in, we should do this thing to it. And there's not as much of um, a system and process in place in terms of getting the bikes into the dealers and getting them uh, done. It also, one of the big implications of a recall versus a a service bulletin is uh, a bike that has been recalled cannot be sold by a dealer until that recall has been performed on Mm -hmm. it. Whereas a service bulletin, uh, I would think most manufacturers would still do it, but it doesn't create that legal obligation. Yeah, it's, it's not critical. Um, so it was interesting to see just, just in my space, people using those words interchangeably, which just makes me think that they don't know what those words mean, which if you're in the business of words, you should know what they mean. Um, that's just definitional to your job. <laughs> <laughs> see what I did there? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so it, it got escalated from a service bulletin, a worldwide service bulletin. Uh, we saw, I think, South Africa was the first country to issue a recall. Then we saw the UK. And then we finally saw the US. BMW sells a boat ton of these bikes and affects the GS and the GS Adventure, the R1200 GS and the R1200 GS Adventure. See that three times fast. And I think I was doing the the math on it, and that's like 
over 150,000 motorcycles worldwide potentially affected by it. I think the recall in the U.S. is only affecting 14,000 models. That's still a lot. Still a lot. And it sounds like it's going to be a bit of a thing. And and it all centers around the uh, the front fork. Well, it's not really a fork, but they have a fork tube. The telescoping part of, hard the, to describe, yeah. of the paralever front end. There's a telelever. I always forget. They have the paralever is the one end and the telelever is the other. And I would assume maybe it's tele because telescoping forks. I don't know. It's all heavy bullshit to me. So I don't really pay much attention to it. But I guess the, the, the tubes that guide the mechanism are, they still look kind of like fork tubes. Right. And some area of those is compromised and needs to be checked. Right. Correct. Yeah. Um, so what happens is there's what they call the fixed fork tube. Um, and there's a seal plug that gets pressed into it. And they're finding that with heavy impacts and heavy use, especially heavy off-road use, especially if like you're jumping and stuff, that that seal plug is coming out and it starts separating and it can lead to the, the potentially the front suspension just failing completely. Completely disassembling, like, like going completely loose. You know, I think it's going to vary case by case. There's There's been some interesting um, documentations of it online. Uh, there was even a website started that showed, you know, some fairly failure catastrophic mode. failures. So it's it's interesting. It's a, it's a problem that's been known about for a while. And, and I think, truthfully, I think the BMW ownership, the the customers, put finally enough pressure on BMW to, to recognize it for the service bulletin. And then truth be told, I, you know, the, the feedback that I've been getting from my sources in BMW, the press coverage of the service bulletin not being a recall is what pushed it over the top to become a recall. Um, so it was interesting to see, like, BMW has been usually pretty good about taking care of its customers when it comes to things like this. And this one, I think it, it was more the other way around where the customers really had to drag BMW to this conclusion. And when you have 155,000 plus potentially affected motorcycles out there, you can kind of see why they might be reluctant to try and bring them all back in and fix them and, or, and take a look at them because that's a lot of bikes to go through and we're already seeing some delays in parts and um, it's going to take a while for for at least uh, BMW Motorrad USA to get through all the the recall bikes and I'm sure internationally it's going to be a it's going to take a while to sort Do you know what it entails? Is it, it's just a check for a lot of it, isn't it? No, all of them are going to get some sort of bracing on the fixed fork tip. Ah, okay. Uh, and then there's also the check to see if the seal plug is coming out. And then depending on that, I think it either gets repaired or replaced, replaced or the whole yeah. front end. I think almost all of them are getting replaced. No. So potentially it could be a lot of, a lot of stuff going on there. Sure. And then right after that, we saw, uh, BMW gets slapped with, um, a recall on its bike for not having reflectors on a lot of the, uh, models that come with bags. And I think that was, Almost thirty thousand units there, and then we saw the 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 police version of the R twelve RT getting recalled in the U.S. for um, I guess you call it an electronic issue when it when it's in what they call special operations mode. Basically, when the lights are operating, the special you know pull you over lights, the brake light stops working. <laughs> so they had to recall all nine hundred and eleven models of that, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. <laughs> So a lot of a lot of recalls going on in BMW land. Obviously, the big one is the concerns the GS. And uh, you uh, need to we need to have the setup so you can play like I like I said nine one one is a joke. You should have it set up so you can play that song. Just a quick blurb of it after you say there's nine hundred eleven units. 
911 is a joke and have you know like good old flavor flav you know what i'm talking about right no. you don't no get up get 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 down no 911 is a joke in your town no <laughs> i can't believe you don't know that song you've never heard it not a public enemy fan uh no that, i mean it was just a con the reason why i would expect most people to know that is it was very controversial right at that time in the late 80s it was a, it was a big deal 911 oh Okay, I can tell you're not going to be into that. Too too risky. Too risky. I lived in the burbs. (laughs) Switching gears on the BMW, HP4 race priced at $78,000 for the USA, but the motor's only going to last 3,100 miles, and then you have to replace it. Yeah, it's like wholesale replacement. They're like basically saying, it's not a refresh. We just need you to replace it, and the replacement cost is going to be 30 grand or something. Do we know? We don't know how much it's going to cost. I don't think the dealers have had that communicated to them. I mean, it took them long enough to tell them how much the damn bike was going to cost. <laughs> I mean, this thing was debuted at ICMA in November. So it's been nine months. We've basically had enough. You could have had a baby in the amount of time it took BMW to figure out how much this bike was going to cost have. in the U.S. I tell you, um, I swear, I couldn't have. You, can't, you, you don't think you could have done it? I couldn't have taken it to term, no way. <laughs> uh, so... 78 grand, um, pretty close to Desmos Adichie and Super Legera, a little bit higher. Yeah, it's a little bit right. higher, yeah. Carbon frame, is carbon that right? Carbon frame. Carbon frame. Carbon frame, aluminum swing arm, carbon wheels, carbon body work. I mean, I think it looks great. It looks awesome. 78 grand's a little pricey, but it's got some cool stuff on it. Oh, well, better have cool stuff in it, uh, in the engine for uh, it to need that. or even. But straight up, if it had the cool stuff, a bunch of lightweight parts, you'd think it would be serviceable. So it's a very strange thing. I get it that you have to have a small window for use on a race motor, on a motor that they're saying is high level. Uh, but, you know, doesn't doesn't need to be fully replaced. I'd get it if they said... At 3,100 miles, the expectation is that it get d- disassembled and inspected and, you know, change main bearings, change pistons, change rings, change rods, maybe, change crankshaft, maybe, maybe if it's that extreme, but I don't know. Don't, I, don't, I can't imagine the cases, the cylinder head. I well, I think at that point, it's just easier for them to swap in. Oh, for sure it is, but it doesn't mean that's right, you know, and as an owner of somebody that, or as somebody that is an owner of a 78 grand machine... I guess I wouldn't care that much, but I would. I I just don't get it. That's very strange. I had, to, I had to think about this one for a while. I got a lot of thoughts. Um, one, I think like one of the things I have to keep coming back to, and that's just, especially when I think about the price. I mean, obviously, I'm not going to go spend seventy eight thousand dollars on a S one thousand double R. Just not in the market for it. But it feels high, and then I come back and like it's a track bike, and maybe this is where the mile thing makes more sense. It's not 3,100 miles like, hey, I went down the street and I need a new engine now. 3,100 track miles. 3,100 race miles. 3,100 miles of you just bouncing it off the rev limiter, rev limiter, hard shifting, all the the things you do at a racetrack that just abuse motors. I get that. It still feels a little like... Meh, like I'm not liking it, especially when I'm already paying so much up front. And now the cost of ownership is even higher. Again, if it was a a thing where they said, you know, these these valves are titanium, they're super light, they get beat uh, in heavily because it's high RPM. You got to change the valves at 3100. Okay, yeah, totally. That's exactly that's a very normal thing. Um, I it's actually a lot. It's it's a long way if you actually uh, think about it relative to like a full race engine. That's quite a bit, especially with with high RPM. But 
not the the wholesale. Okay, you're just going to have to change the whole unit. Unless they have some bitching plan where, you know, it only costs, um, well, let's call it $3,000, right? Because it would probably cost that much at least. Just in labor, right? It, maybe, maybe not that much, but to, to replace all the valves and all the pistons. New main bearings, crank class, say, two rebuilds, something like that. Um, it would be worth a while for like three to five grand. I know it sounds extreme. Well, it's a $78,000 bike. So yeah, it is extreme where I can, but I can see the parts being very expensive as well. But if you're just saying wholesale, nope, you got to replace it. How does that work? Right. I don't, I don't know, but that's understandable. And a lot of people get freaked out by it in the initial. You got to realize like when you're at the, the, the pointy end of racing and you're on the, if you're using the, the duty cycle of the engine really far up in its duty cycle all the time. So in this case, instead of just running around from <clears throat> 3000 to 10,000 RPM on the street and, and every once in a while jacking it up to 14 for, for shits and giggles somewhere, you're using it from 10 to 14,000 RPM or whatever the, the red line of a BMW is all the time. From the time you click it in the gear to the time you, you, you bring it back into the pits, you're, you're revving the crap out of it. Then that's, that's definitely a normal thing. It's usually high RPM that does damage to any, any component, whatever the component is. I mean, does it make a difference that they're only rating it 212 horsepower? I mean, that, and I don't understand if that's a wheel figure or a crank figure. I don't figure. know either. I know that it doesn't. Because it, that's not that much more than the base. Well, model. yeah, but there's the thing is if the only way to get, more power is to rev it. You either have to give it more uh, size and displacement or you have to rev it. So whatever the rev limit is and, and revving it a hundred RPM at 14,000 RPM is significant, right? That's a lot more force than going from, you know, a thousand to 1100 RPM. It's exact exponential at that height. So if they're giving it an extra thousand RPM or something and they have lighter weight, components because of that or due to that um yeah i could i could see that being it you're not going to get a whole lot more without displacement and unless they're going to rev it to twenty thousand rpm they're not going to get you're not going to see 240 250 horsepower and i doubt that the internals of that engine could be made to do that i just something tells me that it's it's probably not possible that they would have to completely reconfigure the thing uh new main bearings bigger bigger more robust main bearings or something like that they're probably at the limits even though let's face it that that mill that engine is one of the best engines in the world for anything it's an extremely cool engine it works really well other than for me being kind of boring it works it's fast it makes a lot of power it's a little bit heavy, but a little whatever. bit heavy, a little bit buzzy. Yep, but but good d- power d- does does a really good job. And the finger follower mechanism for the cams and it's it's a pretty well set up thing. And they yeah they've had their share of blow ups and fuck ups, but no more than any other machine that's you know assembled by human beings. So I don't think it's I, I think they're fairly robust, but I don't know enough about what's going to be in this motor, right? Yeah. One of the, well, one of the analogies I was trying to, to make in my mind was, you know, this is a bike that's very much like the, well, I mean, it's a bargain compared to the Honda RC213 VS, but it's right in the same ballpark as the two Superleggera models and the Desbosici. And so, like, what's the service interval on, like, a Superleggera motor? At least half of what the normal. So, if we had this in Ducati back in 12 and 13, we actually... You'd have to dig into the owner's manual, but there was a, 
uh, a stipulation that if it was track, you you would have completely different service intervals. Right. And it was it was a half, if not a quarter of the of the fifteen thousand mile valve adjustment interval. I think I can't remember exactly. But for sure, it was like that. If you're if you're using it on track, this is what you should do, um, because that motor was again made for that specifically. So they did have the lifing down on crankshaft rods, pistons, valves, etc. So uh, it was extreme, and a lot of people balked at that. But if you tried to race a Panigale and didn't do that, you ended up with a broken Panigale for sure. And if you tried to increase the rev limit on a Panigale. Uh, yeah, you, you weren't you weren't having too good a luck because things were going to pop for sure on the on that motor if if you put on like a aftermarket system that allowed it to rev higher. But you're also talking about pistons the size of your forehead, right? It's a huge amount of masses getting getting flung through there. Whereas the BMW is a little bit you know it's evened out. That is the beauty of four cylinders. It's one of the reasons why you're going to see Ducati go to a V4 because it it's less stress on any one of the given components. It just means there's more components. You yeah. Know? Yeah, I think the more I think about the fact, especially that it's a track only bike, like it starts, it starts making more sense. And then when you understand how BMW has itself set up, uh, in terms of racing, where they don't really, they don't have a factory team, but what they do have is kind of like a factory support where if you're a Michael Dunlop, you can buy a certain spec engine from BMW. And that spec is only limited by how much you're willing to pay. Yeah. It's the same thing with. Uh, I believe it's Altia that's racing in, in World Superbike right now with BMW. And they, you know, they buy a World Superbike spec engine and chassis and BMW just is basically just a service. And it's like, if you, if you can pay to play, we'll build you whatever you want. And it kind of feels like this is a part of that where it's like, well, okay, so you're our track HP4 race guys and you're just, we're going to life the engine just this, like we would at a race this team. This is and, the spec. Yeah. And you don't, as a race team, like they're not servicing the engines. They literally just, hey, this engine's done. Ship it back to Berlin, and then Berlin ships them a new one, and you're good to go. Or Taiwan or Korea. Where do where do those engines get assembled? They're they're well, a high sung based thing, right? The S one thousand double R. I don't think so. I'm fairly certain that that's not assembled in Germany. I would imagine the race bikes are the race engines. Okay, are assembled sure. In Germany. Then it would have been what was it? Alpha, something Alpha, Alpha Q, something like that. Wasn't there a mm, that I don't know. It, it was back in the early days of the BMW S1000RR World Superbike team. There was a specific company, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it. They were somewhere in Europe, and they were the ones that were dealing with the with the bikes. It wasn't factory. That was back when Troy Corser yeah. was racing. It was a factory it. team effort, but, and, but it was. I think that's what ended up getting them out of it. So that's why maybe they changed it. Yeah, when they changed that structure, because that's when they were like, "Yeah, we're gonna go race as a factory team." And it was Troy Corser and Badavini and oh, dude, uh, was Checa part of that? No, careless Chucker, <laughs> super nice guy. <laughs> I'm sure he's really good, really good dude. But careless Chucker is that's one of the best ever. Uh, Chaus, Ruben, Ruben Chaus, yeah, that's who I was thinking of. Um, yeah, but that was, I mean, that project was a total failure, and I think that's what got them out of Superbike and just said, "Hey, if you guys want to keep." racing with this you know we'll support you on the technical side like a factory would but we're not going to be in the business of managing riders and teams didn't and it wasn't johnny ray it was haslam was riding on yeah. and somebody else for a while and they were doing michael okay. melandry michael melandry was on there they were doing okay they did okay i don't think i think they got to top five ish in their standings i don't know if they actually finished top five but they were there they were there in the top five they certainly weren't title contenders though and i think that was the the miss for them was they really thought like two three years into it they were going to be standing on the top step and it just never quite happened 
Well, BMW does have, in, in the car world, they have a reputation for having made some pretty interesting specials out of their M. I'm surprised they haven't brought that M to the to the motorcycle side because there's so much... That M designation? Yeah. It is kind of interesting, right? It, right. So knowing that, like, say, I had a buddy that bought one of the... There's a, a V10 M5 from, I think, the mid-2000s. And it was literally the cases from like their formula one effort, like 10 years prior, it was a bizarre, Oh, we're going to, we're going to make a V10. And the, the service intervals for that sucker were gnarly, but the, the car was sick. It was like measles sick. And if you were into that, if you really wanted something that was at the highest level that revved high and made all the sounds into the thing, you'd get that car, but then you'd have to deal with the service intervals. And it was a legit problem. Like it was an involved deal. So, you know, some people want to pay the play. You want to talk about another high-maintenance BMW? I got one down there in my garage right now with a big Husqvarna badge on it. Oh, yeah, right. But but same thing. You go into the manual, and it's like regular service life for a valve is, I want to make a number up, let's say 1,500 miles. Check the valves. And it has a race service, and it's like 50 miles. <laughs> I mean, it is it is literally like if you're going by the book, you're replacing that engine every 500 miles or something silly like that. Sure. So that's that's a BMW. That's move. the extreme of uh, again, it's similar to the way I was talking about with the Panigale having two large pistons, large rods, big crankshaft that has to manage the the that the weights that are there. Same with a big single. It's a problematic thing. It's not balanced by anything anything good. Uh, I, you it's might be balanced account- by hopes and dreams. Yeah, right. Is there a counterbalancer in the one on your bike? There probably is. There's all kinds of fuckery in that engine, man. That that thing's a that's a morphodite engine for sure. Uh, but it's still single. No matter how much you do to make it happy at high RPM, it's not going to be. So if you happen to go out and do desert racing or something with that, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna be changing parts. And that would go for anything. Like a dude, that's one of the worst things that's happened to the industry. That for dirt bikes is these four strokes. Four strokes are awful and they're expensive. So they might have traction and they might make awesome sounds for certain people. But four stroke, four fifty, and two fifty. Generally, for supercross, motocross, high RPM stuff, pretty, pretty gnarly. Not, not the best f- as far as cost uh, relative to two strokes, right? So, yeah. yeah, but they keep dealers employed. Yeah, I don't know, department. man. I think it's a problem. I think, I think it'd be interesting if you talk to a dealer, and we should probably do this sometime. Ask them, like, all right, circa two thousand when you had a lot of people buying dirt bikes and selling dirt bikes and you're well how how often were people buying parts from you and, and refurbishing their two strokes well it was fairly common is it not is it not talk to a ktm dealer find out how many people keep their 450 motocross bikes over the course of time relative to all the two strokes right it'd be interesting to find out i know i wouldn't necessarily want to own one i own a crf 250x but i do not ride it anywhere within its use case like i I'm I'm just a trail rider, and I've been able to ride that thing for 200 hours, beating the crap out of it on trails slowly, and so the engine doesn't really it doesn't take much um, of a hit. So you know it depends on the use case. And some if I was going to be out uh, racing it or something, of course it would probably be way more problematic. Yeah, that's a good case for electric, right? Yeah, yeah. We just you dig. Know. I got it. I got to dig it in there. <laughs> Good. We're gonna we're looking for a new uh, a new advertiser for the show. Maybe maybe Alta can finally step up for all the free advertising. You said you Alta, I didn't. Uh, <laughs> ah, damn it! I walked into that. Ambushed me with a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, Ronan. 
great movie. All right, so there's that BMW. So there's that. Uh, switching gears to other failing brands. Um, but <laughs> I don't mean that. That's just me being shitty. That don't even. That's not even relevant. Triumph and Bajaj. <laughs> So mean. Get, getting into bed with each other yeah i like well, it i well i fair enough but it's like okay bajaj is very large ownership of ktm yes 47 percent, i believe which is quite a bit of ktm then that's helped ktm do some good things over the past five years say is that bajaj yeah, ownership yeah, yeah, let's more say or less. 2013 i think it happened so, so yeah. either way a few years they're they're doing pretty well and it i think it, it obviously has helped something has helped they're doing something right because ktm's doing really well in general right yes okay so ktm has overtaken bmw as the largest motorcycle manufacturer based in europe and you, as far as unit sales unit sales which is a bit kind of like apples and kumquats I because I have to look at revenue I think in revenue they're making more money too okay well then that would be uh, understandable but you gotta remember if they're doing more units they're selling a lot of little dirt bikes and mid-range dirt bikes and dirt bikes and dirt bikes there's just a different it's a different thing right if BMW is a lot but they're selling a lot of GS's that's a different world they're selling a lot of GS's um, BMW's product mix is really interesting like 40% of their bikes are based on that 1200cc-ish boxer engine. Yeah. And that's insane to me. So that's the GS, that's the RT, yeah, that's sure. the RS now. It's GS Adventure, I can obviously. see it, man. There's something to be said for mechanical signature. Ducati's been doing it for half a century. Uh, BMW does it with that. I don't like the way BMW does it. I think that engine's ludicrous, but it obviously works for a lot of people, so you can't hate on that. But that that's why, because that's why that engine configuration, everybody loves that awful engine configuration. They think it's the, the bee's knees. So you got your, um, you know, V-twin or Desmodromics on the Ducati side. Well, you've got this flat twin on In the terms BMW of side. kind of sacred yeah, cows that you're talking sure. about. Yeah. So and the only other engine that's like that out there is like a Ural. Right. So you're in good company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can't say anything bad about a Ural. Mm. Never seen one break down. Mm, never. Yeah. Never seen one leave someone on the side of the road. <laughs> just just some of the finest 1940s, <laughs> 30s, that. 20s technology. They go for miles. Copied by a Soviet designer. They go for miles and miles, right? They do go for miles. Or at least one mile. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of inside jokes going on here, but that's okay. Those who know, know. Um, but yeah, no, Triumph and Bajaj. I like this idea, though. Um, I like that Bajaj has been able to partner up with someone like KTM to build kind of sub 400cc bikes. And I like that they're partnering up with Triumph. Uh, the rumors we're hearing are kind of 300 to 600cc bikes. So I would suspect there's some sort of like non-compete or some sort of blessing from KTM in terms of, Hey, yeah, you guys can go make bikes, but just not in the same category that we're making bikes together. Well, wasn't triumph for a long time. Didn't we talk about this for a long time that they were coming out with a 300 CC bike and they were going to come out didn't do with it? a 250 CC. Um, it was right when everyone was coming out with like a 250 CC sport bike and triumph was going to get on that, that wagon too. And the story I heard was that, um, the project was very close to getting finished. It was kind of stillborn in its uh, ability to meet the goals set by uh, the brand, and they decided the best course of action was to kill it. So it never saw the light of day. They were going to do that with uh, TVS, I believe, 
who TVS. is TVS. They're the fourth largest manufacturer of motorcycles in India, I believe. Huh. If my memory so serves me correct. So maybe this will this will scratch that back up in the. Well, I mean, if it's going to be a middleweight type bike, I don't think it's necessarily going to scratch it in the same way. But at least it gives um, Triumph a bike that they can produce with Bajaj that they can sell on the world market, and that seems to be the big focus. Is it gets Triumph something that they they can sell in India, China, Southeast Asia, and these markets where you know their smallest bike is going to be like. 675 Daytona, you know. You mean the biggest bike? No, the smallest bike that they can oh, sell. Oh, you mean that, that they ha- yeah, You yeah. know, like if you look at their lineup, they don't have anything terribly no, sure. small. And like they're, you know, the quote unquote like entry model, the bike that's going to get you into their brand is going to be like a Bonneville, which is just big and heavy, but it's still a big, a big displacement bike and it's going to get tariffed the crap out of in, in these markets. Sure. So them having a, a smaller displacement bike that's going to get around some of the taxes and tariffs, and especially if it's being built in India, so then it's going to definitely get around these taxes and tariffs. That's a huge deal. And that's going to allow them to also have a model for Western markets, United States, Europe, Australia, where it is a little bit more of appropriate of like, hey, you want to have your first bike? Well, we've got a 500cc you know, thing for you right here. And that's that's more approachable than this Super Sport. And it's a little bit more approachable than this 500-pound Bonneville. Yeah. So doesn't that make sense? And oh, by the way, since we're building them in India with our partner Bajaj, it's really cheap. So now you can get on a bike for five, six, seven grand, whatever it's going to cost, and it makes sense. So I, I like it from, from a Triumph perspective, and I like it from a Bajaj perspective. We're like, Bajaj is trying to make a lot of headway to get out of the the Indian market and to get out of the Southeast Asian market and become a world brand. And they're doing it by partnering with other, you know, Western brands. And it's kind of smart. Um, so we'll see where it takes them. I'm you, kind of, you, you said something like you think this is going to be the Honda in, in 20 years. Bajaj. Yeah, I do think. I think Bajaj. We're going to talk about Bajaj like we talk about Honda now in 20 years. Hmm. Just in terms of like they're going to be everywhere. They're, they're going to be building the bikes and when the they already have their foothold in, in the largest market, like where we're going to see the biggest growth in sales and the biggest growth in terms of revenue, I should say unit sales and revenue is going to be the Asian markets. It's going to be India. It's going to be China. It's going to be Indonesia, Thailand, uh, you know, you name it, because all these countries are coming online and, and, and industrializing and we're seeing a surging middle class about to come in and, and already coming in and people are wanting to buy more premium bikes. And I think that's why it benefits Triumph. Like it's going to get them in on the ground floor so they can be more of a, uh, an appealing model. Like you don't want to go to India and compete in the 150 CC, 250 CC, 300 CC market. Like it's brutal. It's saturated. Yeah. Honda's already there. Bajaj is already there. Hero's already there. You know, you name, you know, all these companies that already have their, their foot in the door and it's, you know, it's cutthroat. But that 400 to 600 cc market, that's where those those customers are going to evolve to, especially as their economies get stronger and stronger and stronger. It it's, makes good sense to kind of stake your claim there and have something, you know, already established for when that happens. So uh, it could be interesting. It could be really interesting. And uh, let's face it, uh, the British have a great history of going to India. I've never, I've never seen anything bad ever happen from a yeah. British, British uh, business venture in, in India. Um, never, can't think of anything in history where that went bad, where that went poorly. India Pale Ale, yeah, good, it's good <laughs> stuff. Uh, yeah, there isn't a funny thing, but you know, truthfully, like 
you know, we make that joke and colonialism's funny and all that. Um, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like Bajaj is getting the better end of the deal oh, than, sure. than Triumph is. Like that, that's for me, that's why I laugh about it. That's why I can make a joke because it's like, it's these, it's these brands that, you know, for all intents and purposes were, I mean, I don't think they were relevant in the terms of the British colonialism of, of India, but it's like, here's a culture kind of turning the table on, yeah. on it. And you're like, huh, that's good. What's up? Yeah. Hey guys. Stop. How's that whole thing? How's Brexit treating you? Yeah. How's that Brexit going on? <laughs> Cause uh, our economy, yeah, we're crushing it. It's called Mumbai. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'll be curious to see where that takes us. I'll be very curious to see what comes out of it. It's still kind of hard to tell what the real details are. The press release that came from Triumph was not only pretty uh, lacking in its uh, details and specifics, but I'm not entirely sure it was written in English. Um, you think it might have been translated from Indian? No, I think um, whoever the press person is at Triumph Motorcycles in the UK just doesn't have a very good command of the English language because this is like the most poorly written press release I've ever read. I mean, I would, I would read some passages, but yeah, I feel like that makes not. bad radio. But it's just one of the things where you sit there and I'm like, I have no idea what this, like certain paragraphs, I'm just like, I have no idea what that means. Didn't you guys invent the language? <laughs> you should own this did better. You, did you not? And so I was actually talking to a British person about it, just as a fun, a fun aside. And they're like, oh yeah, well, if you're from that area that that person's from, that is actually, it actually makes a lot of sense. Like when you hear it, like if they had spoken it to you and rather than you reading it. And you it, were from there. It would be like, oh yeah, that's, that's totally normal. It's just that it lacked the polish of. The queen's tongue. Mm. Let's put it that way. Mm. <laughs> I wish I, I wish we did a video podcast so people could see the shading grin on your face. I'm just thinking about the polish of the queen's tongue. The polish of the queen's tongue, and that's why. <laughs> and that's why I can't fly through Heathrow anymore. <laughs> uh, Quint, we should take a break for a commercial and then come back and talk some more about what we can polish off our tongues. Heathrow, she throw, <laughs> she threw you right out of the country. <laughs> Uh, Quentin, this episode of the Two Enthusiasts podcast is brought to you by the good folks at Dynezane AGV, makers of fine motorcycle gear that's inspired by humans. Where can you find that gear? Uh, well, I'm going to tell you in case you missed it the, the last 12 episodes or so, <laughs> because you can find it at the factory Dynese stores that are located in San Francisco, Orange County, Chicago, Orlando, New York, and LA soon to come. And those stores are staffed with gear experts who will get you fitted head to toe. They're the only company that can offer you gear head to toe for motorcycle protection, which I think is a pretty big deal. Um, but they can get you kitted out, make sure it all fits, make sure it's, you know, all the gear that you need for whatever type of motorcycling you're going to go do on the street or adventure riding and touring and the racetrack and all that jazz. And it goes without saying that you'll be doing it in style. In style. Italian style. So uh, we thank them for their sponsorship of the Two Enthusiasts podcast, and we'll get back to the show. Um, Quentin, not sure how we transition from that last segment. Just gonna be honest with you. So well, we had a we had a commercial break. We had so a commercial it's break. easy. Just hit so the reset just, button. Let's just go. You know, else, you know what else? I'll hit, do you know what else hit the reset button? What Bonnier. Oh. On Sport Rider. Oh, no. Yeah, so, in no. case you missed the news, Sport Rider magazine is getting shut down. 
that news came about a couple weeks ago. And my understanding is they're working on their last print issue. And then after that, it'll be no more. It kind of sounds like sportwriter.com is going to live on as kind of like a graveyard where stories go to die. Like they're just going to leave it up and hope that the. I hope so. There's a lot of legacy and heritage of that magazine. I mean, that, that is a bummer. Well, I don't think they're leaving it up for the legacy and heritage. I think they're leaving it up because they've invested a lot in the search engine optimization and they're still going to get revenue by people just randomly showing up on Google and stuff. Sure. Well, Which is kind of what. Um, the people at Motorcycle USA did when they closed that magazine down too. You can still go to MotorcycleUSA.com and see the the, the ghost town of that magazine because mm. they still got they still get Google traffic and truthfully, there's probably tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a year uh, on the table when you do that. Hundreds of thousands? Uh, I would guess, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Well, Judging I- what Asphalt and Rubber does and what the the size of Sport Rider is as a brand and its presence online, yeah, I think that's fair to say. Fair enough. Even without new content, when I do a search for new name XYZ sport bike, I'm just gonna it's gonna fade over time, you know. So sure. let's say let's say next year they make hundred thousand, the year after that it might be twenty five, and then maybe after that it's not even worth having it up. I mean, I don't know what the the rate of decay is going to be in yeah, terms sure. of search engine results because that's definitely a factor. But it is kind of sad to see because Sport Rider was one of those magazines that I grew up on. Uh, when I was getting into motorcycles, I was eighteen or so, and I would read, I, well, they weren't all Bonnier titles at the time, but they're all Bonnier titles now. But I would read Cycle World and Motorcyclist and Sport Rider. And I was into sport bikes. So Sport Rider is obviously one that was really important to me. And, and that would have been at the see. turn of the century. So you were right. reading it. 2000, let's say 2005-ish. So Kent Konitsugu was still, he's, he's been in it probably since the mid-90s, I would assume, yeah. I think. I was reading it back in early 90s so a decade before you it was super formative for me and i'm probably sure we've talked about it on the podcast before but at that time it was lance holst nikki Anach, and jason black those were the three editors there might have been other editors and other contributors but those were the core people uh nick helps run the yamaha champions rider school yeah he's a huge part of that and he writes every once in a while he's got a column on cycle world yeah very good he's still reading in it um and he's super rad i got to interact with him a lot over the years mainly when i worked at sis because he and michael sis were buddies and uh he, he was working for the freddie spencer school and Michael had kind of free reign to go down to Freddie Spencer School and, and test the bike. And we went down there a couple of times. And Nick was always super rad, super true enthusiast, super deep. Um, when I got to Pro Italia Motors back in 99, his dad's Yamaha, I'm going to call it a YB4 maybe, was in, in the shop. Right? He was from that area originally. So I've been around him and his writing since the early nineties, but then in the, just kind of tangentially in the industry, I've been around it a lot. Um, great guy. Wouldn't know me from Adam, but is, is a great dude. Lance was super rad. He's still around. Um, but not as not in the industry, not, not writing that I know of. And then Jason Black, I think is gone. So anyway, that was for me, a big deal. Love the magazine at the time. Still have most of my copies as I'm moving houses now. Um, my goal is to look for a few specific uh, uh, issues and keep them because I really enjoyed them at the time. I mean, I was very young and I was into it. So I, I was super formative. So anytime I see it, 
uh, one of the old magazines that just all the memories go into my head because that was what I was using as a, I was a sponge at the time. So I haven't been reading it that much in the past few years. Well, um, you're the problem then. I am. You're, you killed sport writer. Yeah, right. But this, seriously, that's part of the deal is that print is dying in, in a horrible way. And it, and I, I don't, I, I can see why, right? It's tough, right? You know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I've been waiting for this press release for two, three years. I've been, I feel like the writing's been on the wall. When you look at the circulation numbers and not like the, this is how many eyeballs we think read each issue. This is how many issues we print and send out. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands, like between 10 and 20,000 issues a month in circulation. Really, really low circulation for the print magazine. And then the digital side of it, I don't want to brag, but fucking asphalt and rubber is kicking their ass up and down the street in terms of traffic and has been for a long time. So you kind of sit there like this is not a magazine brand that is doing well on any any metric you want to take it with. Now, I don't know what the profitability side of it was. Obviously, not profitable if they have to close it. But this has been something that I think a lot of people in the industry have been waiting to see happen. Maybe not excited to see happen. I'm certainly not excited to see it happen. Um, but you knew it was coming unless they made a huge change it, it, and you knew that was Bonnier was going to come in and just hack shit apart. Right? And that's the thing, right? When all three brands came under the same roof, you just looked at it like, like this is an episode of Game of Thrones about to happen. You know, this is a game of musical chairs with three brands and two chairs available. Maybe one chair available. I still, if I got a, a, a press release today or tomorrow, you know, saying that Cycle World or motorcycles had closed and that everything was being consolidated under one brand. Wouldn't and be surprise like, me at all. Wouldn't surprise me. I think it makes sense with what Bonnier is doing now where you've got Cycle World as kind of the um, publication of record kind of format. We're going to cover racing. You're going to cover news. You're going to cover bike reviews and things like that, like classical kind of bike magazine um, focus. And then you have motorcyclists, which is kind of turning into like a more of a lifestyle experiential. I, I was going to say long form, but it's more just kind of like feature oriented. And then where does that leave sport rider in that, in that setup? And the answer is it doesn't. And that's what we're seeing today. And also um, let's face it. Sport bikes are not, not like sport bike sales are doing great. So that, that, I mean, absolutely is a total factor in there. So it's tough. It's tough to see. Um, we're seeing a consolidation of voices in the motorcycle industry in terms of our media, uh, possibilities. Too bad they didn't have a death match and they ended up the death match. Like, like, like publication death match. Yeah. I think that's, I feel like that's what's going on though. Yeah. You know, when you look at, when you look at what's happened in this space in the, the last, Five years. I think you could probably even truncate that down to you know three years. We've seen all the major print labels come under one roof. We've seen the uh, closing of one of the largest uh, online publications, Motorcycle USA. We've seen the closing of one of the oldest uh, brands, which would be um, blanking on the name. Cycle News. Cycle News. And you've seen, we've seen. It's not closed though. They, they, still, well, they were about to be closed. And then, and then, you know, someone came in at the last minute and purchased it. Uh, the same people that run Digital Throttle. We've seen uh, one of the long, largest online retailers start up its own publication thing. We've seen the Sport Revzilla. Revzilla. We've seen Cycle. Oh, I'm sorry. We've seen Sport Rider close. We've seen motorcyclists switch to a six. Uh, issue format that is substantially different in focus. We've seen 
um, Hell for Leather turn into Ride Apart. We've seen, you know, like there's been all this change. There's been all this change in just the last few years. And it's like, man, like the fortune cookie says, may you live in interesting times. It's interesting. It's very interesting to watch. I don't think it's all for the better. No, it's not. Because then you're, you're the, the, the people are getting a monopolistic view of, of the industry in a, in, a, in a really not very good way. Because Bonnier has their fingers in a lot of pies and the manufacturers all have their fingers well, in Bonnier's pies too, right? And that was the thing that was really interesting um, beyond just the fact that Sport Rider is being closed. When you go and you read the press release... You know, at no point in that press release does it ever really talk about uh, consumers or readers or enthusiasts. It talks about advertising and marketing opportunities and brands and, you know, like business buzzword bingo bullshit, you know, just out the wazoo. And like at no point do you get the impression that this is going to be really good for these brands' readerships. It just sounds like it's going to be really good to streamline operations to help marketers reach their audiences. And, you know, and I know that the Bonnier Motorcycle Group, which is like the media division that oversees all this, you know, they already do uh, PR and marketing activities for brands. So when I go to an Arai Helmet press launch, that is being put on by the Bonnier Motorcycle Group. And they invite, obviously, their publications to it. And they invite people like me. And, you know, they're basically the PR department for Arai. And now we see them, or at least in Laguna Seca, we saw them out in the Moto America paddock talking to riders, talking about representing them and being their agents as another extension of what the Bonnier Motorcycle Group is going to provide. And it's this idea of like the pitch is real simple. It's like, hey guys, we can connect you to brands because we represent them in a PR marketing capacity and we can get you press because we own the publications. We own publications in the space and that helps the brand that we're hooking you up with because that means they're going to get exposure too. And it's like a win, win, win. It never sits down to think about like, well, what are you doing to these print publications that have these great, you know, reputations of journalism and you're just completely eroding it. And that's my biggest worry there is like you see you see the the monetization of of these brands where like, you know, Bonnier is getting into hosting events, they're hosting track days, they're hosting rallies, they're doing marketing PR for for advertisers. And then, you know, like if you're cynical about it, you can look at what's going on in those magazines and be like, okay, is this content or is this paid for? Yeah. And it's actually interesting to see that the FTC is starting to crack down on things like this. And I wonder how that's going to affect stuff. How would the FTC, what would they do? Well, the FTC has been cracking down on paid for content that isn't labeled as such. And one of the big things that it's affecting is online, um, social influencers where it's one of those things where like you have to declare that like hey this is a paid for post this is this is content that has been paid for this is content that is an advertisement when i when i see on instagram somebody it'll say sponsored but i can do that if i if i decide i'm going to put some money in to make sure that my voice is louder and that gets put in that's different that's that's those that's instagram or that's facebook saying like hey you can have sponsored content where this would be different is, let's say I write a story extolling the virtues of AGV and Dynasty products. Okay, so here's a brand that sponsors our podcast. Yep. And, and this is truthfully stuff I get pitched all the time, not not by AGV and Dynasty. I should be clear about that. But other brands have approached me and said, hey, Jensen, I would love for you, I would love to advertise on your site. But before I do that, I would love for you to review my product. Yeah. And based on how that product review goes, that's how I'll base my ad to buy. Now, that's like the Diet Coke version. 
the the straight up like Coca Cola and milk version, the Pepsi <laughs> the, the Pepsi and milk version, <laughs> is is it's just straight up like, hey, we've written this story, we would like you to publish it. We'll pay you a thousand dollars to publish it, and it is uh, it'll be like a review, but it is the most positive blowjobby yeah. review you've ever seen. Now, according to the FTC, that is perfectly fine and legal for me to publish. I just have to label it as such. I have to say, hey, this is not an article. This is an advertisement. Or this article has been paid for. And we see that in magazines. You see it in magazines. And sometimes you see the ads in magazines. It looks like it's an article. And yeah. then you'll see at the bottom, like, this is advertisement. Which is super disingenuous. I super hate. disingenuous. But that's what keeps them on the right side of the law. But we're seeing the FTC starting to crack down on this, especially online, especially in the blog sphere. And that's just kind of what the industry's turned into in, in some ways. And it feels gross. It's gross. It's unfortunate. It's... It comes from spineless leadership. I'll just be really honest. Like if you don't have the spine to say no to the people that are going to willing to offer you, you know, baskets of cash for, for your, you know, integrity, then it's just going to go away and it's just a slow erosion. Um, and if, for better or worse, you know, I think consumers and readers and listeners are very savvy on when that's going on and it feels very disingenuine. Like I think it, I think it's a bad engagement for brand when you do that because you just look swarmy. Now, maybe there's a hypersensitivity because I can see it even on my own site with some like, actually, it's a great example for, for you and I on our podcast and, and even on Asphalt and Rubber where, you know, people talk about like our bias for Ducati. And it's like, oh, well, Ducati must be paying for it. Ducati yeah, must be winning yeah. the, the Superbike Deathmatch because you guys have such a hard on for Ducati and this and that. Where it's like, there's already this cynicism yeah. that there is a bias. You know, and I can tell you from my perspective, I don't think one exists, but I know as a psychologist, there always is a bias. So that's why you have to set up the format in a way that you can rule out your own bias, which is a whole other can of worms. Hence the death match. Hence the death match. Hence, we haven't talked about the tire test thing I want to do, but you know yeah. that the format of that is specifically set up to eliminate rider bias. Well, that's we'll save that for another show. Though. So there's a teaser for that. And the and the Daneasy and and AGV thing that we've been doing, if we were. Uh, if we were rating gear or like on the show saying, hey, we just did a test with the new this and that and that and this and the AGV and guess what won? I would feel pretty crappy about that. I that would feel swarmy, that. right? Yeah. That, that would lose all authenticity, I think, with our listenership. And I would truthfully be like, that's the reason I got into this business in the first place, the fast fall and rubber, is because what I was seeing and what I was reading didn't feel like it was holding up to the old journalistic standards. And that's the thing that I think that's really interesting because uh, in the struggle of old media versus new media, the old media guys are always like, well, we're the journalists, we're the professionals, we're the ones that bring process and experience and have a division between advertising and editorial. And I look at the motorcycle industry and I'm like, that's not how it feels. And if anything, I feel like the online guys have been better about it than the, the print guys have. Just my perspective. You know, that's, that was especially nine years ago. Now the me, the online guys have gotten savvier and people are trying new business models. So there are people out there. I would say they're more for higher than others, but especially you know, these, uh, a lot of these influencers up. that are on Instagram. Well, right that's now. the other thing. And that's where the influence their things comes from. And that's why the FTC is cracking down. So if you want to bring it back to that, uh, that's where it's really starting to get into a thing. And then people, and I am seeing, starting to see a couple influencers like be like, Hey, hey you know, I'm sponsored by this, this company. This is a sponsor thing. Like da, 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 straight up because truthfully people are starting to get pinched. Uh, and that's the FTC is starting to, to play whack-a-mole and they're picking the biggest moles to whack first. 
And so it's only a matter of time before it trickles down, but there's looking at people like, Hey, like, you know, you see a lot like, uh, uh, in fashion and for cosmetics and things like that, where there's high margins, you know, and so they can afford to kind of pay these influencers for leads. There's seals like, Hey, why is, why is, I'm going to pick on Calvin Klein. I don't know if Calvin Klein does this, but like, why is that model in Calvin Klein or why is this social media influencer always wearing Calvin Klein? Well, it's like, well, they're paid by Calvin Klein or they're paid by whoever that brand is. And it's the same thing. Like we're starting to see that in the motorcycle space where you see, you know, actually there's been a lot of brands that are, that are working the social media angle. Some of those ambassadors are paid for and some of them aren't. We talked about this with Letitia in the last show. Um, you know, and it's interesting like to see that kind of vetting out. And obviously Letitia is one of those people that does get paid for some of the stuff she can she posts and, and, and doesn't get paid for some of the other stuff. And, and how do you balance all that? Um, disclosure is always, I think the best, the best formula for it, but that's not always the case. And that some of that, I don't necessarily think is malicious. No. People just don't know what to do. Some of it kind of is, you know, I've definitely gotten some, some shady ass deals sent to me over email. And you're just like, really dude, like it's almost disheartening because if you feel that comfortable sending me that sketchy of an, a proposal, that means other people have probably said yes to it or no one's ever pushed back against it, <laughs> you know? So, and then, and then like a month later when you see like another publication promoting that brand and you know what that deal was and you're just like, really Ugh. like Ugh, Ugh. gross. And then like, you know, the next press launch will bring it up to the dinner table, <laughs> but say la vie. Cause, cause that's what you do. Cause that's what I do. I don't need to have friends. I got enough already. <laughs> I wish I could have that attitude. Unfortunately, not all. You got time. me, man. You only need me. We're good. You yeah. and I, Yeah. my right. mom already thinks we're dating. It's fine. Oh God. <laughs> Got any more tips for the rest of the show? Um, where are we at time wise? You want to talk about the, the <laughs> that was a tip joke. That wasn't even a, oh God, to get the tips. Remember it from the beginning of the show. Yeah, got tips. Okay. Right. Yeah. The docking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. The docking joke. Yeah. 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 The, the joke about docking. I tried to forget all about that. So yeah, thanks for okay. bringing it back up again. <laughs> um, speaking of brands that don't pay us to say things, do you want to talk about the Ducati traction control thing? Yeah, yeah sure. Because this this is this is a bit of a conversation we were having before, uh, before the show during during our lunchtime. How are you yeah. doing on time? You good? Yeah. All right. So, so this is a ungraceful changing of gears, but um, if it's well, because that's how Ducati transmissions work. <laughs> oh, that was a gearbox joke. <laughs> I can say that because I was just at the track with my Street Fighter. Love that bike. Yeah. Some hard shifts though. That yeah. gearbox is very agricultural like. Yeah. Um. Big gears, man. Big gears, ancient design. It's 30 years old. Didn't have a single false neutral. No, it's just clunky. And and if you're not. Well, you know what the thing is? I'm so spoiled now that I miss my quick. I miss miss quick shifters. Yeah, the the deathmatch. I tell you what. Well, I had a quick shifter on mine and it was amazing. And that's just upshift. None of this blip and downshift stuff. Yeah, I don't need it for the downshift so much, but I need it for the upshift. But it gets spoiled. Right, and can you imagine a Street Fighter with like a full system and an up and uh, up and down quick shifter? Oh, dude, nah, be, I think I'm in the market now for one. It'd be sublime. It was so much work, and I was doing double sessions. Yeah, because um, I was doing I was doing some helmet stuff, so I had to get out on the track more. And man, I was so beat. My hands were so beat the next day from all the shifting, and I was like, I am such a spoiled little bitch because I'm so just using bink bink bink. And I've been riding around that, that Brutale on the street too, yeah. which the quick shifter on the street is like butter. Yeah, it works pretty well. So I was just like, I haven't been, I haven't shifted a motorcycle in like a month and I was like, had to be re-indoctrinated on how to do it. 
So it was good times. Uh, where were we? Ducati's Ducati coming Ducati out. So, so the story here is that the Ducati DTC Evo, that's Ducati Traction Control Evo, which is the IMU powered of their traction control system. So that means it's basically going to incorporate a slide control on top of a wheel spin control. Um, I don't know if we need to get more technical in describing that. What do you think? Nah. Yeah. Look it up. Yeah. Google it. Sure. Um, yeah. It makes, makes, makes the bikes go fast. So the cool thing is, so this is a feature that came on the 2017 version of the Panigale, but didn't come on the 2015 or 2016 version. And Ducati's making it available retroactively to those It bikes. is a software update. It is that a is software it. update. You plug in a computer, you click upload, you unplug the computer, and it does the thing, uh, which is pretty cool. They're going to charge about $570, $565 for this upgrade. And I had a big, long back-and-forth conversation with Ducati about why I think it should be free. They seem to disagree. Um, I think it's a sunk cost, and I think the opportunity of getting the bike into a dealership service bay where you can then see if, hey, do you need an oil change? Hey, your chain's really worn. Hey, did you know you need new brake pads? By the way, we've got this great new slip-on exhaust that's going to make your bike sound awesome. You should try and you know pony up and get one of those. That, for me, feels like that's a lost opportunity. Anyways. Especially at the extreme. like I wouldn't mind it if it was like, hey, we're going to... Uh charge you shop minimum or charge an hour labor or this, you know, and, and, you know, maybe a hundred bucks for the thing itself. So a couple hundred bucks and you've got the thing, but to do 600 for a thing that is literally a push button away and you're taking that functionality that you would get, like you said, with your iPhone that updates all the time. Yeah. I, I think this is the brave new world we're in. And I will say that with Alta, we made the commercial decision early on. It's like, hey, we're going to have firmware updates. This bike is a lot of firmware updates as we learn all the things from the field uh, with an electronic or an electric uh, vehicle. It's going to take a lot of little tweaks and that's going to be constant. And if we could have, we probably would have put a Wi-Fi in the thing and it would just constantly be able to update, right? Eventually, that's probably going to be the the part the point that it gets to because I think that's what Tesla does. Right, right. You park your car and it, it gets a Wi-Fi signal. It's like, oh hey, software update, mm, firmware. Oh yeah, right. And, and it's, it's really done. interesting. You can go onto Tesla's website and I think it's like Tesla.com/slash/software. It's really easy to get to, and it'll show you the different versions of its operating system and what they bring. And like in the last two three years, they've gone through like version four to version eight. And you go and you look and it's like, you know, uh, automatic brake assist, automatic keep you in the lane, sh- in the lane assist. Yeah. I don't know what they call that. Um, th- and then all the way up to the autopilot program where it's like basically the car drives itself. And so like when an initial Model S changes. owner got their vehicle, there might be some hardware changes that they didn't get. But generally, the, a lot of the stuff is software, a lot of it. I'm not super good on my Tesla model knowledge, but there is like a an internal like that's not internal because it's 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 known publicly but there is like a tesla model s mark one mark two yeah, mark three sure. and it's like the mark one and mark twos don't have the hardware yeah necessarily for yeah. for self-driving but like mark three on does and let's say but they're on like, is, let's it's, say they're it's, on mark five now so there is like a like a hey by the way like we just came out with this autopilot thing and it's in our it's on it's in all of our new cars but cars generation four and three can have it too. 
which sounds very familiar if you start thinking about the Ducati example. Sure. And it's free. It's a free upgrade. And that, that was kind of my my pushback to Ducati. I was like, I think you're on the wrong side of history with this because you know that's where this is kind of headed. We're already seeing brands in this space, and that's how they're approaching it. And by and, sunk cost, you mean they already did all the work that they were going to do to make their current bike the bestest, fastest. And that is going to be at a $600 premium to the year, the year before, right? So that was the thing. It's like a 2017 is a little bit more expensive. Yeah, yeah. And that was that was doing the research. That was the interesting thing that I didn't know that Ducati didn't make me aware of. Um, but, it, you know, there was a, a price change between the 2016 and 2017 that you could say reflects that change in feature, which would make it seem more fair in my perspective. But I still come back to this idea that like it's a sunk cost. It's actually it's a double sunk cost. You developed this system in World Superbike five years ago. Then you had to spend a little bit more money to commercialize it for the for the production bike for 2017. Because by the time 2017 came around, everyone was doing this. Every superbike on the market has an IMU powered traction control system right now. Every single one of them. So you had to do it to just stay relevant. So it's like you've already had to like amortize this cost twice. And now you're like, you just kind of want to like double dip and be like, oh, yeah, 2015, 2016, guys, here's this thing that we've already paid for to develop. And now we're going to charge you for it, even though it basically cost us nothing to do that. And that feels a little tough, but. Especially when, oh, by the way, uh, right now you couldn't sell the bike you bought a year ago for $7,000 less than you what you bought, bought it for. Because right. they, they've been tanking, right? When I was dealing with. 2015 model 1299s. I mean, it was tough to get any of the new ones out. And this was last year when I was part of the pre-owned department at Motocorsa. Oof, right? So if maybe if it was like hot cakes level, oh my gosh, they can't, we can't keep them on the shelves. Holy crap. All these people, they're going to need this latest, greatest thing. That, that, that market's tough. It's tough. So you throw them a bone. The people that own these bikes, like, oh, I'm not saying make it free. I kind of go in between you and. The Dan Ducati. I get it. I think maybe because I, I work with a manufacturer, I get it. But at the same time, I also recognize the the good in saying, okay, you just bought this super fancy vehicle for a lot of money. Here, free up free upgrades, right? See just, here's a button. You have to go into the shop, but we're not going to charge you for this. See that see that's that's I think where they're they're missing the opportunity. Because I was talking about like, you know, the value of getting the bike into the service bay and the and like the little upsell things that you can ding oh, a customer sure. once the bike's in there. And that's that's fair. But look at it too from a perspective like if you want to help dealers or give dealers a reason on why they should be a certified Ducati dealership with a certified Ducati mechanic and all the stuff that comes with that rather than like an independent shop that happens to work on Ducatis, this would be a great reason why to do that where it's like, well, hey, every six months or so, especially let's take a, a minute back and realize like how much more important computers and technology are going to play in the role of future motorcycle design. So, you know, you're going to get to this point where like, like you said, with Alta, we're going to be perpetually updating these bikes with new software, with new firmware, with new features as we develop them and as we come to market with them and as it, you know, becomes the, the level of technology that's, that's available in the space. So you're going to come to this point in time where, there's a lot of value in being like, hey, yeah, you can only get the Ducati OS upgrade when you go into your certified dealership. And that's, 
you know, that's a great reason why you should get your valves done there rather than take it to an independent yeah. shop or, sure. or whatever that item and is. And I don't know what the legalities of that are, but it's plausible that could be, right? I, absolutely. Well, absolutely, because that's part of the package that you're going to be buying from It's not necessary. From the OEM. It wouldn't be a safety, unless it was a safety thing. Yeah, it wouldn't. It's not a necessary thing. So Ducati can do it. It's their proprietary thing. Yeah. We're going to have to stop thinking about, well, let's put it this way. Right now, or I would say, Five years ago, at least. Now we're starting to have this transition point. Motorcycles were a hardware game. You were, if you were a motorcycle OEM, you were in the hardware business. And now we're seeing a thing where motorcycle companies are in the hardware and in the budding software business. Like this is the first time that I can think of that an OEM has provided an aftermarket software update that isn't like some bug fix, that isn't some technical service bulletin, that isn't like fixing a wonky throttle or or something that wasn't working correctly. It was a, we are giving you a bona fide new feature that you didn't have before. We are taking your motorcycle and making it better in, in, in a fundamental way. Your, your motorcycle did X and now it's going to do X plus one or X plus two because and of this all upgrade. we're doing is firmware update. It's hitting a button. Yeah. And as... You know, when you look at how uh, vehicle technology is moving away from mechanical parts to electronic parts, we're only going to get more and more and more down this path where software is making the difference, not the hardware. You know, because it's not, it's not that hard to think of a future where motor technology is all pretty much the same. All battery technology is going to be more or less the same it's plateaued and, and, and for I don't sure mean, and i don't mean that in the sense of like um the design of it but it's like it, it'll be about the same i, I mean it already is the, everything's plateaued right everything 600s well, thousands from a sport bike standpoint there's there's improvements we had but it's mostly in electronics we've had the same size and shape of tires for 25 30 years we're limited by that more than anything on a motorcycle. So from that point up, you're just, you know, lighter weight wheels, maybe not lighter weight wheels, different swing arm, different location of the shock, maybe a little bit of different engine configuration, maybe a little lighter, maybe not. But they're all going about the same speed around racetracks. They're not like some huge sea change that we saw when the GSXR went from a double cradle to a to a perimeter frame or something big like that. I don't I don't think we're seeing that. We're not going to. Not, not as, I don't think the changes there are going to be big. Like, you can see something like, like bringing it back to Ducati. It's going to be a big change from a V twin to a V4. And, you know, we did see kind of a big, I wouldn't say a huge change, but there's a noticeable change when Yamaha went from, uh, a regular firing interval to a cross plane, or sorry, a flat plane crank to a cross plane crank. And when you go from like a big bang firing order to a screamer firing order or a twin pulse firing order or whatever you want to do, there's, there's some variance to be made there. And you can talk a little bit about yeah, it. No, they're not much though. But it's not much. Yeah. It's even not the, much. Even a Ducati V twin to V4. Yeah. It's going to, but it's not. But take it, much. take it to the next couple steps out. Right. So let's say, uh, it's actually interesting that we're seeing this movement in Europe. Uh, the UK was talking about banning the sale of new gasoline and petrol vehicles by 2040. And, um, we've seen similar proposals coming out of France. Like, there's a foreseeable time when all vehicles will be electric. Yeah. And I think there's, I think it'd be more noticeable then to be like, well, you know, battery manufacturer A versus battery manufacturer B, what's the real difference? Like they're going to have underlying technologies. They're going to have different ways that they package things. But at the end of the day, they're going to put out 400 volts with 400 amps or whatever it is. And that, and that really is long because those are the only two measurements that are really going to matter in terms of what you're going to put to the controller, what you're going to put to the motor. And those motors are going to put out 
linear power at a certain rating and eventually that power is going to be too much to even handle on the street so let's yeah. say everything plateaus at 250 horsepower and eventually all those torque curves are going to be perfectly flat across the entire power band and you're like okay so what's the difference between motor a from or motor a motor from company a versus a motor from company b and it's like they all do the kind of same thing except for the software the software is where you're going to see the differentiation and motorcycle manufacturers are going to have to start thinking about hey you're no longer in the hardware business you're in the software business and that's why i kind of get on ducati's case where it's like you guys don't realize it like you're still acting like you're in the hardware business we're like hey our bike if you have a 2015 and 2016 panigale it does a if you pay me 600 dollars more now it does a plus one that makes sense why wouldn't you pay for that where it's just like well it's almost We're so buying bad. a platform, and now you need to support the platform. The reason I'm a Ducati owner is because you're going to support me throughout the lifetime of me having this vehicle via the software. <laughs> yeah, no. And and it's almost like, to be, it's so bad that it almost feels like they're like, oh, we're going to make this feature right about the same time we're going to release a V4. You're going to come in, and you're going to look at spending 600 bucks on this plus some other maintenance stuff, and then you're just going to roll yourself right into a V4. That's It's that bad. I know it sounds cynical, but that's how it looks to me. It's like it's that expensive. Then it's like, oh, yeah, they're just going to get people in the door to try and sell them the new superbike. You know, it's interesting. Like, I was thinking about how they could do this differently. And I think we talked once in our early, early, early shows about the four different types of gamers. Do you remember this yeah. conversation? Yeah. And I was thinking back to, like, the the idea of, like, the achiever. So, so there's four types of gamers. So there's four ways you can stratify gamers. And it's achievers, uh, socializers, seekers, and destroyers. And the basic, the real basic version of it, like the achievers are all about like, like what they can show that they did something like the medals, the, the ranking, whatever it is. Seekers go out and their whole thing is about discovering new things. Socializers are there for the social aspect, talking to other people, forming partnerships and joining groups and things like that. And the destroyers are the guys that just go around and killing everything. And you can, I think you can translate those groups into just about anything. It's really, it's an interesting lens to view things, especially from a marketing perspective or from a product perspective. And I was thinking about that when this came on and I was like, you know what would have been such a great move by Ducati? Uh, and I don't know if this is a Ducati North America thing versus a Ducati motor holding in Italy thing, but not just the software upgrade, but you also get like a sticker or you get some sort of badge. So when you upgrade your bike, there's You've unlocked. There's something on it now that says, like, under the Panigale S or whatever, it says, like, Panigale S DTC Evo. And I think for some people, like, that would be the the, the value to be able to, like, the roll up at Bike Nike. Like, yeah, hey, I got, like, the 2015, but look, upgraded the software. Now I got the, I got the DTC Evo badge. Uh-huh. And it sounds like a really stupid thing. Like, who's going to pay $600 for a sticker? But there are totally types of personalities that thrive on having that thing that they can wave to say, Hey, I bought this thing and it costs more than your thing. That's the entire uh, philosophy, in fact, behind the idea of the Panigale S and the Panigale R and the GSXR 1000 R and the uh, Kawasaki Ninja ZX10 Double R and the Honda SP. Those, all those, the little extra letters, those two letters at the the end of the name, or that extra letter at the end of the name, or that those gold wheels or those gold forks. They're not there so much because they're better. They're there to say, hey, I spent more on this or this this thing that I bought is better than the thing that you bought that doesn't have them. That's what that whole thing, that's psychologically from like a marketing product development point of view. That's all what that is. It's signaling like I bought the premium thing. I bought the better thing. And I feel like there was a missed opportunity where like you could have signaled that better Ducati and said like, hey, I bought the thing. Your bike doesn't have the thing. I got the thing. What's up? My bike's better than your bike. Zip. 
that's me that's me unzipping my fly to do the thing mm. to whip it out that's 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 what that sticker does for me i don't have to unzip my fly now because i've already done it on my bike and you're like that's my tip for the day that's my tip for the day good tips see you out there well and maybe that would be the uh the ultimate if you had a gold kickstand that came out of the bike go zzz, like zip down right zip a zip stand yeah a cute was it a quick quick stand a quick, quick stand that's what we trademark right. yeah quick stand we should probably file that Better get on that get on, quick. Get on that quick. Somebody's going to get it, and I'm going to end I up. I can't stand it if they get it before us. <laughs> can't stand it. You like that? Oh, yeah. All right, well, let's put them up for this episode. Let's put them up, but first, you know what we haven't done in a while? I was going to say, like, first, we should say that this episode is brought to you by the good folks at Dynasty and AJV. Yep. Uh, makers of fine motorcycle apparel that you can find at their D stores in San Francisco, Orange County, Chicago, Orlando, New York, LA soon to come. Um, but we haven't asked people to follow us on Facebook recently or follow us on the Twitters or Instagram. And uh, I was actually on the iTunes store the other day looking at our thing. We haven't had a review in a while. So if you listen to the show uh, via iTunes, which most people do, we would really appreciate it if you would just take a moment to go online and review the show, give it a rating. I think it's uh, out of five stars. And leave us a comment. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Uh, we're always about positive uh, or constructive feedback. So let us know how we can make the show better. Uh, we definitely enjoy reading your comments. Uh, I've definitely seen more than a few um, iTunes podcast reviews and comments that have made me chuckle. So those are always good. Because uh, we do read them and we do take them to heart. And we haven't asked for uh, your opinion lately. So I wanted to do that. And Quentin's on Instagram all the time posting up. All the all the Instagram never never on there. But you are on Facebook. You do good stuff on Facebook. I try. I try and get I, that I actually. I really like the the two enthusiast Facebook uh, stuff that you do. I think it, it adds a nice dimension to what we're doing. We gotta gotta keep up on it. I think if if somebody likes the show, that they'll appreciate the 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 stuff I've curated on there. Yeah, and it's a lot of it is really great because it'll be like old stuff I've posted. It's now that they show them yeah. the memories, I'm like, oh yeah, but it's it's evergreen, right? Showing a picture of Eddie Lawson and Wayne Gardner after a plug chop after a grand prix. Now you gotta, now you gotta describe what a plug, uh, plug chop is. Oh, all right. All right. So I posted up this picture and it's very strange because mo- most of the time it's like, why would there be two people on a racetrack facing the opposite directions talking? Two people in leathers full on. It's not something you normally see. Well, two stroke era, um, of grand prix. The best way to read a spark plug to determine your jetting is to do a plug chop. Plug chop is high RPM, high load, and right at the apogee of the uh, of the straightaway, you chop the throttle and you shut the bike off and you coast and stop. Uh, at the at that time back in the 500s, it was critical. This is before generally before um, exhaust gas temperatures, which is another way to jet gauge jetting. And before uh, detonation counters, which is another way to gauge jetting, um, so they would have to do this, and then the tech they would get uh, like a ride back to the pits uh, because if you rode the bike at all after doing the plug chop, it would contaminate the color of the plug, and you couldn't gauge what your main jet was. And this is mostly for main jet. You could kind of see the needle a little bit there, but these are the types of things that are in it. these are the components of a carburetor that fuel the carburetor that you have to get within a gnat's ass of it to get the power you need to beat the beat your competitor. So 
in this case, they do the plug chop, they go down, and then the technician would get it eventually and take the plugs out and have a look at them. And as long as they're a nice cardboard color or some derivative of that, depending on the oil and fuel they're using, then they would say, all right, I need to go up or down on the main jet. And then that would also uh, make them adjust the needle jet and the jet needle and the uh, slide cutaway and the uh, uh, pilot jet, et cetera, and the carburetors. And that's why there's a plug chop. So why were they facing opposite directions? Who knows? You know, they got out to the bottom of the, uh, or at the end of the track, the session was over and this is usually when it'd be done. And one saw the other one sitting there waiting and decided to creep up next to him and, and talk about that really, really shitty pass they just made on the uh, other okay. one. You know that, what I mean? That makes sense. If they're sitting around waiting for some dude to come along. Exactly. To push they're them waiting back for the what is essentially now the crash truck. At the time, there was probably a plug chalk truck or it was a known thing. It was, it was like either you had to have a technician waiting at the end of the straightaway. In some cases, it made perfect sense. You'd be at the, fr- the front straight would be the perfect place to do it. Some places it would be the back straight or dependent on the track, right? I rarely did plug chops i was really fortunate when i raced 125s i kind of figured out how to read my plug just after a, a hot session but i was also doing it on a 125 two-stroke and i used motul oil and it just it read really well and i was able to gauge it off of not doing plug chops but then eventually i had a detonation counter which literally counted the detonations um if you're running lean or depending on how you had your piston to cylinder head set up if you had really really too tight of squish, you could detonate a lot. But if you're running lean, eventually you'd start getting too many detonations. So you'd have, you'd do a calculation. You'd see on, on the side of the bike, there would be a little thing that would count the detonations via a little gas filled chamber that went around your spark plug. I'm not kidding you. And then if you would calculate how many kilometers you went, uh, through the session and how many detonations you had. And I think the goal was like between four and 10 detonations per kilometer. <laughs> It's between four and ten. Yeah, between four and ten, because it, I mean that that's a pretty it's a pretty small it's amount. It's one hundred and fifty percent range. Well, at, uh, per <laughs> kilometer, you know, depended on on this. It depended on the situation, right? I it was a it was a. It's been a long time. It could have been it could have been a little bit tighter than that, but you didn't want it to get any more than ten. And some people might say, "Oh, well, it depends on what the condition was going to be at the start of the race relative to the end of the race." what you were going to have your jetting at, right? So there's these these bikes were like scalpel level. Any two-stroke, 250 or, or, well, 125, 250 or, or 500, especially road racing because you're dealing with, uh, I think mine was a 14,000 RPM engine, the 125 RS Honda. So high RPM, you're splitting hairs. And if you get a jet size off and then you happen to have the needle clip in the wrong position, you'd, uh, you'd tie the thing up at the end of the straightaway, right? Too lean. Or if you got your squish just a little bit wrong, you you would uh, detonate the hell out of it, and it would it would look like a cold seizure. Anyway, so the only time I've ever seized a two-stroke, strangely, was actually at Port- Portland International Raceway. I got the setup really wrong, and n- nobody had warned me about how Portland is very weird in that it has a very, it, depending on the prevailing wind, you have a really hot front straightaway with a wind going against you, and then a really cool back straightaway. Uh, or as we know, it's a cor- corner. And it, if you jetted uh, for the back straight, then you'd be you'd you'd uh, you'd you'd seize it on the front. And that, that was the only time I ever. I still have that piston. Looks like it looks like somebody took a golf swing and and hit the ground right on the top of the piston, and it seized four corners. It's the only place I've ever seized is Portland. It was weird. Anyway, so that 
is a plug shop. <laughs> Sorry, we went off on a on off on a. No, it's cool because I think I think the whoever posted that photo up originally had asked like I don't know what's going on in this photo. I don't know what a plug shop is, but this is the thing. And yeah, and I think I had to describe it then, and then some one of our our listeners slash readers saw that and was like, okay, and I just I just answered them not too long ago. Oh, okay, um, because it is it's worthwhile questions like pl- plug shop. What, what I mean, pork chop, right? Roger Lee's Roger racing. <laughs> All right, quick stands up. Good talk. See you out there. Get some little fat exercise, little little rotund kitty exercise. I like that she wasn't interested in the laser pointer until you put it on the door where her food is. And then she's just like, I must protect this house. She's been she's been going. Phones on silent. So is mine. Good. We're professionals. We're 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 adulting hard on this podcast. <laughs> Hello, I'm Jensen Beeler. And I'm Quentin Wilson.